Cage, 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, October 15th, Neuromuscular Force Production. Okay, uh, I want to finish up a couple of things that we were talking about last time on Tuesday uh, about twitch characteristics. Okay, and we've got this, this table of a variety of different uh, performance. Well, this one's more morphological, so structural. Well, no, it does have performance, so it's got functional aspects as well, metabolic aspects or characteristics of these fast-twitch and slow-twitch fibers. So far, we've pretty much talked about the extremes, the type 1 slow-twitch and the type 2A fast-twitch. Recognize that these muscle fiber types are really sort of on a continuum and that there are some fiber types that are sort of in the middle, and they're referred to as type 2As uh, or intermediate fibers. Okay. Sometimes they're referred to as FOG or fast oxidative glycolytic. So they're more, uh, they're not as oxidative as these, but they're more aerobic than the pure fast twitch. They're not as glycolytic as these, but they're more glycolytic, they're more anaerobic than the pure slow twitch. Okay. So there's sort of those fiber types that are in the middle there somewhere. <coughs> Excuse me. Now. We talked about training, the, the effect of uh, both genetics and, and also training on these, the, the muscle fiber type distribution. What is very clear from the literature in humans is if somebody does predominantly endurance type training, the characteristics of the type 2B fibers start to shift in this direction. They become more like the type 2As. The characteristics of the type 2A fibers shift in this direction and they come, become more like the type 1s. Okay? That's very clear. Uh, very clearly demonstrated that people that have a lot of fast twitch fiber, if they, if they don't do high intensity training, if they do long slow endurance type training, they lose their capability of producing as much power their endurance performance improves, but they lose that some of that explosive power ability. Okay? Now, let's go the other direction. When somebody that is predominantly type 1 does predominantly power-oriented training, there is no question that the type 1 fibers become more like the type 2As. Okay? They sort of shift in this direction. They don't completely become type 2A fibers or fast twitch, but these characteristics become more like this. What is an, a little controversial in the literature with humans is whether or not the type 2As really shift and become more like type 2Bs. Okay? We're not really sure that that occurs much. Okay? The person that's predominantly slow twitch can improve their power-oriented performance Okay, but we're not sure that it shifts dramatically up at this end. I'm not really sure why. It, it may be related to the fact that it's difficult to do training that fully engages and completely uh, mimics the or, or, or stresses the capability of those pure fast twitch fibers. Okay, so don't don't really know for sure. Okay, now. What I want to finish with with these um, is how, how, do, how do we figure out these fiber types? Talked about it a little bit last time, but basically uh, 
the most accurate way of figuring this out is you need to get a piece of the individual's muscle. Okay? With, with humans, this works, again, because humans have very much a mixture of fast and slow fibers. Um, so you can go in and get little bits of muscle and be reasonably assured that it's a good reflection of overall fiber distribution. Okay? So you can go in and get a little, little uh, do a muscle biopsy, get a little piece of muscle. Uh, what you do is you take it and you put it in this, um, what's called a mounting medium, which holds it in place, and you freeze it. And then you put it in a device that um, is called a microtome, which is a device that has a very thin, very sharp blade on it. And it's also, uh, it's like a refrigerated or, or freezer type cabinet, so you keep it all cold. So you put that in there and you, you put it on the device, and it's almost like the, uh, the deli counter at your, at your uh, uh, grocery store, except that it's a lot more expensive, okay, and a lot more precise. And what this blade does is it goes down and it slices off very thin sections, and if you orient your sample correctly, you can get nice cross sections. So each one of these is a muscle cell or muscle fiber that would normally be oriented like this, coming out towards you this way, longwise, and so we've cut it crosswise. Then what you do is you take those cross sections, put it on a microscope slide, and you stain it with something that is unique or characteristic to one sort of the fiber type or another. Okay? Uh, you can go, you can use a variety of these different uh, metabolic or biochemical characteristics as an example and myosin ATPase as an example has lower activity in the slow twitch fiber and high activity in the fast twitch fiber. So in that case this is a sample or an, or an example where they have stained with a stain that is very specific for myosin ATPase. So where you have fibers that have a high myosin ATPase activity, it gathers a lot of the stain, and so those fibers stain dark. So what type of fibers are these? Those are fast twitch. Because they've, they've accumulated a lot of the stain that is specific for myosin ATPase. High myosin ATPase activity, lots of stain, dark fibers, fast twitch. Okay? These have accumulated very little of that stain, and so those are slow twitch fibers. And then these gray ones are obviously in between, and so these would be intermediates. So type 1s, type 2As, and type 2Bs. Okay? Question? You said last time about the <coughs> chicken example with the dark mm -hmm. and the white bean. Mm -hmm. Well, in a, in a chicken, as an example, the, the dark meat, well, see, that's, okay, I can see where that's confusing. Um, in this case, you're using some kind of external stain for something, so it's, you're, you're literally taking that microscope slide and putting it in a jar that has a liquid with a, with a, a chemical stain in it, okay, so that's why these are dark, but these are fast twitch. In real life, slow twitch fibers would appear to be dark meat because they have more hemoglobin and myoglobin and more blood supply. Okay? So, so, it's not quite the same in humans. It, it is, yes, but again, in a, in a 
if y'all could hold the conversation, I'd really appreciate it. Yes. Wait, let me, hold on a second. Let me, let me finish this question first. Okay. Because in an animal model like a chicken or a, a laboratory rat, you have whole muscles that are almost all composed of one fiber type or another. So in a chicken, you know, that, that thigh muscle is going to be almost all slow twitch, so it appears, and we call it dark meat. Humans have much more of a mixture of fast and slow, so we don't have such a dramatic difference in terms of uh, uh, our pectoralis major would be equivalent to the breast muscle in the, in the chicken. It's not all fast twitch, and our, and our quadricep muscles are not all slow twitch. They're very much a mixture, so they don't appear dark and white. Yeah. Okay? Question. Myoglobin. Okay. Question. Is there any way you can hook up like a voltmeter? Do they do they give off different electrical signals? They don't give off different electrical signals, but the the most accurate way of determining fast and slow is is actually is in the characteristic of the specific myosin myofilament, and so. Um, well, they, they do sort of in a way because there's a biochemical technique that's called gel electrophoresis. And what it does is you, you basically take this muscle sample and you grind it up. And then you put, uh, you, you know, you incubate it in certain things and then you, you basically put that sample um, on this gel and the different myosin proteins will migrate across this gel based on their molecular size and their molecular characteristics. And so that's, how, that's actually the most accurate way of determining fast and slow is you're actually looking at the biochemical characteristic of the, the myosin um, molecule itself. Okay, So that's a little more complicated. It's the most accurate way of doing it. But it's a little more complicated, takes longer, requires more laboratory equipment and steps. Okay? Question. Slow twitch. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. That's the that's the confusion I was trying to avoid here or, or trying to explain. That's in real life. That's intact muscle. Okay? This is test tube, where we have added an external stain that stains specifically dark for the fast twitch fibers. So this is an artificial laboratory test, okay? But in real life, the, the, the dark meat in the chicken is slow twitch. And that's because there's a greater blood supply, there's more blood flow, there's more hemoglobin and myoglobin, which is dark colored compared to more fast twitch fibers, which absent that are more white. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, yeah, it's not necessarily because specifically because of the presence of oxygen, but because of the, the aerobic nature of the slow twitch fibers compared to the fast twitch. Okay? Because if you've got muscle fibers that are more aerobic in nature, you want more capillaries, more blood flow, more hemoglobin, more myoglobin, more mitochondria, all those things that are part of the aerobic oxidative phosphorylation energy system uh, are, are, are present, 
and that makes the muscle appear to be darker. They're actually uh, yes, but it's actually the opposite. They're they're they are aerobic. They're mostly aerobic because they're slow twitch fibers. So the the in this case the chicken comes first. You know the 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 performance comes first. They're slow twitch. Therefore, these other characteristics are all uh, uh, involved. Uh, 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 um, I don't want to say evolved. All of these characteristics are present because of the performance characteristic of that fiber type. Okay. It's going to be more aerobic. It's going to be less fatigable, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Cool. I'm going to have to switch this because to make it more confusing, um, there are there are actually some different stains where the slow twitch fibers will stain darker. So maybe I need to do that in the future to avoid that. I didn't even realize that that was going to pop up. So that that's good to know. Okay. Um, there have been lots of folks. Can we, if you want to have a conversation, let's take it out in the hall, okay? Um, all right. There have been lots of advances in technology using uh, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, lots of other things. Um, there. And there are a variety of different techniques, but there's not something as nice and neat. It, it would be cool to have something like an MRI that you could just slide somebody into, have them do some sort of exercise, and have it tell you, you know, all of the metabolic processes that are going on, you know, uh, uh, determine fiber types and, and that sort of thing. You can, you, you can kind of get at it indirectly. You, you can use, for example, the MRI technology, which is called nuclear magnetic resonance uh, uh, imaging, to get a handle on high-energy phosphates within this muscle. And fast-twitch fibers have more high-energy phosphates. They've got more ATP and more creatine phosphate, um, but that's indirect. So we don't really have the technology yet, you know, as an exercise physiologist, in fact, I just asked a doctoral student on his comprehensive exams yesterday, um, you know, what kind of technological advance would you like to see in the future that would help our jobs in research be easier? And it would be really cool to have some kind of um, probe that you could stick in somebody's muscle and it would wirelessly tell you all of this stuff that's going on. You know, we just don't have that yet. So, someday. Okay. <coughs> now, Everybody, no, not everybody would like to give up a chunk of their muscle, you know, to find out what um, uh, fiber type distribution they have. So, one of the studies that was actually uh, done back in the 70s or early 80s attempted to use the fatigue characteristics of the two different fiber types to, to, to develop a test that would give us a, a, um, a, a non-invasive test to give people a reasonable idea. And I mentioned this last time. The primary author on this research study is uh, uh, Alf Thorstensen. So this is referred to as the Thorstensen test. And basically what they did was, uh, as I mentioned last time, they used a device. It's an isokinetic dynamometer. 
It, you can set them up to do a variety of different exercises. In this case, they set it up to do a knee extension. Okay, so you're looking at the ability of the quadricep muscle group to produce force. They set it up so that um, um, the, the speed of movement was relatively fast. Okay, because that's what you do with an isokinetic dynamometer. You set the speed, and then the person tries as hard as they can to produce as much force as they can at that speed of movement. Okay? It's on like Kincom, too. Kincom is an example. Uh, there are others, uh, Lido, uh, uh, Cybex, not the kind of weightlifting Cybex equipment, but um, Cybex makes a, uh, an isokinetic dynamometer. You see them a lot in PT clinics. Uh, biomechanics labs or sports medicine facilities, that, that kind of thing. Okay, so as, as you can see on here, they had them start off at one, and the idea was that you, you do the knee extension, you kick out as hard as you can, but then you relax when you come back. And as soon as you get back to the starting point, you kick out again and do the next one. As you can see from the study, they had them do 50. Okay, 50 of these. So the idea is that after the first couple, Where's my? Um, with the with this particular subject, with the first couple, you know they produced a, a large amount of force, and then the quadricep muscle group started to fatigue. Okay, the more they did, the more tired, the more fatigued the muscle got, and so they kept doing them, kept doing them, kept doing them, and got all the way down to here. Okay, so they started off with high force, but they fatigued a lot. This subject over here started off with less force, but didn't fatigue nearly as much. Okay, So they, they didn't produce a lot of force to begin with, but they maintained a large percentage of their force as they went through the whole 50 uh, contractions. Now, the original study <laughs> originally had them do 100. Okay? But what they found out is that the additional 50 didn't give them much more accuracy or information. So the test as it's done now is just with, is with 50. They took muscle biopsies from these subjects and they did fiber type distribution. So they correlated what they call their fatigue index, how much fatigue uh, or how much force was lost with percent fiber type. And so what we've got over here, this is percent fast twitch fiber and over here is the percent decline in force, how much force was lost. So people that were more fast twitch lost more force. Okay. So this is a, a, uh, a non-invasive test that you can do like in a PT clinic or a sports medicine facility or something like that where they've got a, an isokinetic dynamometer that can give you an idea. Uh, you know, if you're if your fatigue decline is about 50%, that correlates with about 50% fast twitch and 50% slow. Okay, so you can you can predict your percent fiber distribution with a test like this. Okay, <coughs> uh, a similar test that uh, it doesn't have exactly the same correlation, but would be similar to the 30-second Wingate test y'all did right at the beginning of the semester because you're looking at the amount of power that's produced right in that first couple of seconds and then how much power is lost over the 30 seconds. Okay? So similar type of test. Okay. Questions about muscle fiber types and their characteristics? Okay. The last slide. What's that? The last slide. 
Last slide. Yeah, I just I just did those today, and uploaded them, so it's up there. Could you identify them by Um, they are bigger, but the problem the problem arises when you've got somebody say who's uh, who's more well trained as a, let's say they do long slow distance running and they don't do any high intensity stuff. What happens is their their type two Bs uh, are not stimulated to grow much, but the type ones are because of the training. So they they may have hypertrophy because of the, the distance training and so you can't necessarily do it just on uh, cross-sectional area. Now they will do cross-sectional area with fibers as, uh, as a result of pre and post training that they try to tag to the specific type of training they do. But it's hard. I mean with the biopsies because it's you know you're basically you're going in to, into this muscle like the vastus lateralis and you're getting a little tiny you know, 20, 30 milligram uh, piece of muscle like this, you know, and then you may have them train for six months and you go in in a different place of the muscle and you, and you get another little tiny piece. So there's always a question as to how representative it is with those two small pieces. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not familiar with with distribution of those fibers, at least from proximal to distal end. Um, and I know when we when when you do studies where you're trying to determine fiber type and you're and you're doing biopsies, you almost always do those as in, in the belly of the muscle, just because um, you have less chance of hitting other important stuff when you're when you're trying to take a chunk of muscle out. So those are usually mostly done more towards the belly of the muscle. But I'm not aware of any organized distribution or concentrated area of fast and slow distribution like that. Okay, let's see. All right, so let's move on. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, because what we have talked about so far pretty much with muscle is how individual muscle cells produce force. Okay? You know, we've talked about the, the chain of events, that, that excitation contraction uh, process. Uh, we've talked about muscle cells. Now we want to move up a level and talk about how whole muscles produce force. Okay, because as I sort of set it up last time, individual muscle cells, when you stimulate them with this, with this twitch that we're talking about, individual muscle cells follow this principle of all or none. The muscle cell either, the stimulus exceeds threshold and the muscle cell produces force and it will produce all the force it's capable of or it doesn't produce any force at all. Okay, so it's either all force, no force. But we know whole muscles don't act like that. We know that with muscles, we can grade or change the amount that of force that a muscle or muscle group can produce so that we can lift small things or do things that require small amounts of force. And we can 
you know, we can lift larger, heavier objects and produce more force. So we want to talk about how we're organized and how we, how we do that. The way that we are functionally organized to be able to get a muscle to change the amount of force it produces is by these specific arrangements that are called motor units. And I, th I think the lab instructors talked about them a little bit in lab last week. Um, a motor unit is an alpha motor neuron, okay, an alpha motor neuron and all of the fibers that it innervates, okay? Remember when we talked about this alpha motor neuron will come into the muscle, it will branch, and it, each of these branches will innervate an individual muscle fiber. So in this case, this example up here, we've got two motor units. We've got this alpha motor neuron over here, and it's innervating this muscle fiber and this muscle fiber right here. Okay, so they're kind of you know lighter in color, so you can see those. This alpha motor neuron splits and innervates three, and here's one here, here's one here, and here's one here. Okay? So make sure you understand clearly the definition of a motor unit. Alpha motor neuron and all of the individual fibers that it innervates. So what did we say was the most important determining factor of whether or not a muscle fiber was fast twitch or slow twitch? The alpha motor neuron. And what's specifically about it? The size. Okay, and by size I mean the diameter. So if you have an alpha motor neuron that is large in diameter and it comes into this muscle cell and it splits and it innervates these two muscle fibers, tell me something about these two muscle fibers in this motor unit. They're going to be fast switch, both of them. Okay, so every fiber within a motor unit is going to be the same type, fast twitch, slow twitch, or intermediate. Okay, so if this is a Actually, I got those back. They kind of did it for me here, and I didn't even realize it. Uh, if that one's a small diameter alpha motor neuron, those are slow twitch. And here, this, this one appears to be thicker, so if it's bigger, then all of those are fast twitch. Okay? So with motor units, we know then that... Oops. First of all, motor units are usually confined to a single muscle. It's not likely that an alpha motor neuron uh, comes down goes into one muscle and then branches over to a completely different muscle. Okay, usually it stays within the same muscle. All the muscle fibers within that motor unit will be of the same type, that is fast, slow, intermediate. If an action potential comes down this green alpha motor neuron, it is going to go to all of the fibers that are uh, that this alpha motor neuron innervates. Okay? So the same action potential that comes down this alpha motor neuron is going to go to every fiber within that motor unit. Question? Did you say that the larger Yes. Large diameter is fast twitch, small diameter is slow twitch. Okay. So now, within this motor unit, all of those fibers are going to act all or none. So now we've gone to, from a single fiber 
to a whole group of fibers that are part of a motor unit. They are, if they receive the, act, the same action potential, all of the muscle fibers within that motor unit are going to act all or none. Okay? Now, these motor units are not fixed. Just as we've got with this example, you know, one alpha motor neuron may innervate two fibers or it may innervate three. In reality, there are much bigger differences than that. Uh, we can vary things by how many motor units there are in a given muscle, and we can also vary things by how many muscle fibers there are for any given alpha motor neuron. And let me give an example, or a couple of examples. Where do we find extraocular muscles? In the eye. What do they do? Okay, are, uh, so these are muscles that actually position our eyeball so we can see. Okay, so are these muscles going to be large muscles or small muscles? Are they responsible for fine motor control or large gross motor control? Fine motor control. So as an example, these extraocular muscles for every one motor neuron, they may only innervate 10 10 or so uh, muscle fibers. So when you've got a signal coming down this one alpha motor neuron, it's going to cause that motor unit of 10 muscle fibers to produce force. Okay? And it will produce all the force that all of those fibers are capable of. But in this case, it's only 10 fibers. Uh, where is your first dorsal interosseous muscle? Well, osseous is bone, yes. It is the muscle in your hand right here that helps you move and position your index finger. Okay? So, uh, in relation to extraocular muscles, bigger, smaller? Bigger. Um, responsible for fine motor control or gross motor control? Both because we do things like writing where we need fine motor control but we also may do things where we have to uh, have a lot of grip strength so it's it's force characteristics are such that we, we're going to need on occasion to produce more force than these so as an example one alpha motor neuron will innervate about 350 or so muscle fibers Okay, so same action potential that comes that, that gets the force of 10 fibers in this muscle will get the force of 350 fibers. Okay, uh, where's your gastrocnemius? Calf muscle. Okay, which one? The one that's underneath or the one that's on the outside? The one that's on the outside. And when I say medial gastroc, what does that mean? Towards the outside or towards the inside? Towards the inside. Okay, so that's the inside portion of your calf muscle. Okay, um, related to these two, large muscle or small muscle? Large. Responsible for fine motor control or gross motor control? Gross motor control. Large force. It's the primary muscle you're going to use when you push off to walk, when you push off to run, when you push off to jump. Okay. Um, so in this case, for every one motor neuron, 
it recru it's going to have, uh, uh, it's going to innervate about 2,000 muscle fibers. Okay? So we can be arranged or constructed anatomically so that the same action potential, depending on how the muscle is, is arranged, can, can result in small force production or large force production. Okay? <coughs> so the, the, the main organizational plan that we use to vary the amount of force we produce in muscles is by using motor units. Okay. Um, now, question. So where do, where do antagonists come It comes into play down the road because I don't want to talk about those yet. The question was about the antagonist, the, 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 the um, muscle that opposes. I, I don't want to get there yet because we got some potentially confusing ground to cover before we get there, and I don't want to add that in yet. Okay? All right. So within, we, within a given muscle, uh, we've got a certain motor unit structure. Now within that muscle, we can change the amount of force that's being produced by a variety of different strategies. Okay? We can either change how many of the motor units are activated within that muscle. We can change the rate at which the motor units are being activated. Or we can try to coordinate their efforts a little bit better. Okay? So let me, let me give you an example. Uh, Okay. If you do studies of strength training and, and changes in muscle strength over time, one of the things you want to do is a pretest on muscle strength. So one of the things that is, is clearly established in the research literature, if you take a group of people that are novice to weightlifting, and let's say we want to look at the one repetition maximum bench press. So you have them do this test and you see how much, what's the maximum amount of weight they can lift one time with the bench press. Then you start them on a training program. Typically within a week or two, you can bring them back, retest their one repetition max on the bench press, and it will have gone up. Okay? In fact, we looked at that study with the creatine loading, right? They did, the, they did a one rep max bench press test. And then they either loaded or gave people a placebo for a week, and when they came back, their strength was actually higher a little bit. Okay? Now, as we'll talk about down the road here a little bit, uh, well, next week, the main reason for us getting stronger over long periods of time is that we actually stimulate the body to synthesize more muscle. Is a week or two enough time for us to synthesize and add more muscle? We start the process, but it's not enough time for us to actually synthesize new muscle proteins for it to make a difference. So how is it possible for somebody to get stronger in a week or two without adding more muscle? Okay, muscle's going to tear, there's going to be some ultra-microscopic injury, it's going to rebuild itself. That is all true, but that takes weeks. Okay? All right, here's the, the, the idea is that we can maybe use more efficiently the muscle or more effectively the muscle that you already have. 
Okay? And here's how it works. Or here's how we vary these motor units. I heard somebody here talk about crew or, or uh, rowing. Oh, he's not here. He missed his big uh, example. Okay. Right. If you know anything about uh, the sport of rowing or crew, there's a, a variety of different um, uh, categories. Uh, there is, for example, um, singles, okay, where you've got one person in the boat. Uh, these are the slowest boats. Okay, if you, if you uh, want to go faster in rowing, what can you do? Add more people. They have pairs, and they have quads, and they have eights. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, uh, we don't have all the, well, you can see the, at least the handle part of the oars. Okay, so one way to make the boat go faster is to add more people to the boat. Okay, so one way for a muscle to produce more force, if you've got a muscle that has a thousand total motor units, and I'm lifting this weight, and maybe I only need ten motor units, if I need to produce more force and lift something heavier, one of the things that I can do is just add more motor units. Okay? The term that we use is recruit. And that term is basically just sending an action potential from the central nervous system down that alpha motor neuron and tell those gr that group of muscle fibers to produce force. So instead of 10 motor units, maybe I want 20 motor units. Okay? So you just add more people. Now, um, once you have got a certain number of people in the boat, so they're, they're maxed out, there's no more seats in the boat, how can these folks make this boat go faster? What's that? By working harder or more specific? Okay, that's, that's, that's coming, but what's, what can they do to work harder? Row faster. Pick up the stroke rate. Okay? So, if we're producing a certain amount of force and we want to produce more force and we've got a certain number of motor units engaged, one of the things that we can do is we can send action potentials to those motor units faster and tell them to recruit force more quickly. Okay? So that's the equivalent of rowing faster, picking up the stroke rate. That is... That is the rate of motor unit recruitment. Okay? Then lastly, and I like how observant this class is, somebody immediately said, wait a second, there's nine people in here, in this boat. And this person's sitting here in the back and doesn't even have an oar. That's the best seat. That's the best seat, huh? Yeah. You're close to the action, but you don't even really have to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. First of all, anybody, anybody, what's, what's this person called? Dead weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is called the coxswain. Okay, the coxswain. And uh, the, their weight might appear to be dead weight, but they do have a function. And, and their function is to help this crew row very effectively together as a unit. Okay? Now, let's, let's stick with my example here for a second. Theoretically, 
if each one of these people is a motor is a muscle cell or a motor unit theoretically you've got eight you've got eight motor units theoretically any one of these people could put their oar in the water pull on it as hard as they could and then the next person sticks their oar in the water and then this one and then this one and then this one and then this one each person oar in the water maximum force oar in the water maximum force you could add up the maximum force of all eight people and you and you would be going as fast as you could okay but in the sport of rowing they spend a lot of time on the water practicing and they don't do random or work and that's this person's main job is to help them stay synchronized okay so what they do is the ultimate in rowing is that all eight oars hit the water at exactly the same moment all eight people put the maximum force on the oar at exactly the same time okay they're synchronized in their efforts and when they do that you literally see the boat surge forward like this okay and so this is an example where um, let me get to my where's my yeah I had it in here somewhere oh this is an example where the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts where all of these eight acting together in perfect synchrony you get more total force than you do with each of them individually now let's go back to that novice weightlifter and you're doing that one repetition max bench press how many of you have either done this yourself or worked with another a friend a client or something like that the first time they've ever lifted free weights they lay on the bench you help them unrack the 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 weight they take the weight and then what happens <laughs> they're all over the place right give them two or three workouts with the free weight bench press and what do they look like a little bit nice and smooth and in fact what you see is they can actually lift more weight they don't have any more motor units they don't have any more muscle yet but what they're able to do instead of those motor units firing at slightly slightly different times you're training the nervous system to recruit those motor units all at the same time in synchrony okay and so when you get them all working together at exactly the same time then you can produce more total force okay that's synchronization uh, it's also referred to as when you when you lift weights as an example you train your nervous system just like you do the muscular system you train the nervous system to recruit those motor units in a more effective pattern so that's referred to as neurological training so when you take a novice you test their maximum strength you come back a week later and you test their maximum strength again and they're stronger it's because initially their nervous system is the one that is adapted first and fastest that makes sense okay <clears throat> yeah so this person really isn't dead weight back here they actually have some uh, a reasonable function um, now let's see actually let's look at uh, let's go ahead and take a look because I let's go back to interactive physiology and I think they've got a reasonable 
Um, do we, uh, There we go. Can't, we can't go without the sound, right? Alright, maybe we don't want that. Okay. So same setup here. You know, we've got spinal cord. Uh, an alpha motor neuron coming down and innervating these fibers. Another motor neuron coming down and innervating these. So we've got two motor units. Um, Okay, so, so if we want them to act independently, okay, so this one is, you, you can see the, if you, if you look, if you start looking up here, you'll see the action potential coming down and then recruiting these fibers and you'll see the amount of force that's being produced with this one motor unit, okay? So action potential comes down, recruits that motor unit and that amount of force. Okay, well let's do motor unit B. Okay, that one recruits more fibers so we're getting more force produced. Okay, and then where's the, so do it on this one? No. Maybe the next one. Okay, then if we want to recruit, if we want to win the teddy bear here at the fair. We want to we want to produce more force. Okay, we want to recruit both motor units. Okay. All right, so how does this relate to the lab you all did? How how is it this this act this yellow action potential floating down here or coming down the alpha motor neurons? How is that related to the lab that you did? What is that that you have from lab? The what? Yeah, but how, how did we measure that action potential in lab? Not force. Force is some. Force is the eventual result. How did you measure the action potential? EMG. This is an electrical signal, okay? And you can put electrodes on the surface of the skin, and you can me you can measure this electrical signal as it comes down. As it comes down the alpha motor neuron, you can measure the electrical signal. Okay? And you did that with EMG. So let's go back here. If we're recruiting just motor unit A, how much electrical activity is that? Not a lot. So your EMG signal is going to be big or small? Small. And look at the resulting force. Small. Okay, so what you should have seen, hopefully, this lab was the one where you tried to do like 10 kilograms and then 20 and then 30 with the force, right? So here's 10 kilograms, so what should the EMG and the force look like? Small. Then this is a bigger motor unit. We're producing more force, maybe 20 kilograms. EMG? More electrical activity, okay? And then here, when we produce lots of force, we got both motor units going. Oops, come on. We got both motor units going, so what about EMG activity? 
higher. Okay? So this is the process of recruitment. You're sending action, but if you want to produce more force, you know, if you're being told in lab to do 40 kilograms, that means you've got to produce more force. Your brain is going to send a signal to those forearm flexors that they've got to produce more force. So we're going to send more action potentials to recruit more motor units to result in more force. Okay? Does that make sense? Hopefully that's what you saw with your 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 kilograms of force. You should see that integrated EMG getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? Cool. Yes, exactly. Because if you're, and, and indirectly, yes, because your intention is to produce less force, so you send, you're going to recruit fewer motor units, so you don't see as much EMG or electrical activity because you're not sending action potentials down as many alpha motor neurons. Does that make sense? Yes, and, and in this case, if you're looking at forearm flexors, um, most of the motor units are going to be comparable in size. In, in other words, um, you're, you're not going to have the vast differences like I talked about between the extraocular muscles and the gastrocnemius. Most of the motor units within a given muscle, like those, those uh, forearm flexors, those motor units are going to say, you know, they're you know, probably going to be in the, you know, I'd say ballpark maybe 1,000. You know, so one alpha motor neuron is going to recruit maybe a thousand fibers. So if you're only going to do 10 kilograms of force, you only need a couple of motor units. But if you're going to do 40 or 50, you need more motor units. Okay, make sense? Cool, Devin. And this, like you said something about fibers exert a greater or faster. Which fibers exert a greater specific force? Yes, yes, it does. That has to do with what's called the size principle, okay? So now, um, fast-switch fibers are going to produce more force, okay? On a fiber-per-fiber -fiber basis, a fast-switch fiber is going to produce more force, okay? Um, <clears throat> for low-force activities, if you're just doing 5 kilograms, 10 kilograms, you're just holding a pencil, do you need a lot of force? No. So do we really need to recruit many fast-twitch fibers? No. For those low-force activities, we probably want to rec recruit slow-twitch fibers because the force is low enough we can get the job done. And they don't fatigue as much, right? They're aerobic. We've got plenty of oxygen. We've got plenty of time. So for low-force activities, we want to recruit slow-twitch fibers. So... Um, small, the size principle, small alpha motor neurons have a lower threshold for recruitment. Let me say that again. Small diameter alpha motor neurons have a lower threshold than do the bigger ones. So it is easier to recruit slow twitch motor units okay and so for most low force activities 
you're going to recruit slow twitch motor units, slow twitch muscle fibers. Now, yes? Small alpha motor neurons have a low threshold for recruitment. Okay? So if your teacher has a low threshold for extraneous discussions in class, that means they're going to pop off quicker. Okay? So, um, so slow twitch motor units have a low threshold for activation, so it is easier to recruit them. And you'll recruit them for low force activities. All right? Now, you're being asked to, to produce 30 kilograms, 40 kilograms, maximum amount of force. Okay, so the force requirement or the force that you're asking of these muscles is going up. So what's going to happen is you're going to successively, first of all, you start to just add motor units. Okay, let's, uh, you know, this, this, this only took 10 motor units. I'm going to add more weight. Now I need 20, now I need 30, now I need 40, now I need 100 motor units. Well, eventually you get to the point where you're starting to exhaust the low threshold, the slow twitch motor units, and as the force requirements get higher and higher, you're going to start recruiting fast twitch motor units. The fast twitch motor units fast have a large alpha motor neuron. Their threshold for recruitment is higher so that you don't recruit them when you don't need them. Okay? You only bring those in when you, when you really need lots of force. Okay? <coughs> So this is what's referred to, uh, and I've got it here in the, let's see, uh, okay, alright, so if you're, if you're doing low force activities, then you're going to use these smaller motor units. As, as you get to higher force activity, you're going to start use, recruiting uh, larger motor units, or the ones with the larger alpha motor neurons, the more fast twitch motor units. When, when, if we're looking at a continuum, we're starting it at 10, 20, 30, 40 kilograms, you, you, you start off by adding motor units and as you get to really high levels of force, then we start to increase the rate of recruitment. Okay? With low force activity, we mostly use slow twitch motor units. And as the intensity of the exercise gets successively higher and higher and higher, we get up into the fast twitch motor units. Okay? So this is what's referred to as the size principle. Smaller alpha motor neuron, slow twitch fibers first for low force activities, and then with more explosive sports types activities, we're going to use bigger alpha motor neuron fast twitch motor units. Okay? 
So I can't even remember the original question, but it was along those lines. Was that? Did that get at it? Okay. <laughs> it's not unusual. What you all are learning. Okay, let's go back to. Uh, Okay, so there's our there's our motor units. That's a little quiz. So here's an example. Uh, here are those extraocular muscles. Okay, so um, you can get an idea that this is a this is a it's set up in a pattern where one alpha motor neuron here in yellow innervates only a few small fibers. Okay, because we want to do really small movements. Okay? One alpha motor neuron results in really small precise movements. If we want to do something bigger, the alpha motor neuron coming to quadricep muscles is going to innervate thousands of fibers, so recruiting one motor unit is going to give us lots of force Okay? Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to skip over muscle tone. Let me go to um, Let me show you one more thing on uh, on this before I shut it off. Uh, and that's that's this uh, notion or this idea of summation. Because so far we've really just talked about these kind of individual twitches or individual um, action potentials. So I want, I want to look at um, summation. All right. This gives you an idea of that experimental setup that I talked about where you've got a muscle. Okay, we've got this muscle right here. It's anchored on both ends. It's got an electrical stimulation device and then it's connected to a force transducer that comes over here and it's going to give us uh, uh, an, an amount of force that's being produced by this muscle. So, you know, what we can do is we can hit this with the electrical stimulation and we get the latent period. Here's the stimulation. We get that latent period, the, the point of time where it's producing force, and then the relaxation. Okay, so that's an individual muscle twitch which we saw in class. And so there's those different periods, latent period, contraction, and relaxation. Now, that's a real simplistic view because when we're looking at trying to get muscles to, to produce force so that we can do some kind of useful coordinated movement, um, we don't just send one action potential at a time. We send lots of them very quickly. And we get with the muscles what's called summation. So what you're going to see is, is two action potentials coming into this muscle, one right after the other. Okay. Okay. So, notice what happens is we get the first action potential, we get the force production, and it starts to relax, and at the time that, it, that muscle fiber is relaxing, it gets hit with the next action potential. And guess what happens? It shoots right back up and produces force, but it's additive. It builds on the force before it. This is what's called summation. Okay? So with these muscles, when we send these action potentials in a quick, 
coordinated fashion, the, the force can build on what was there before. Okay? Let me show some uh, further examples. Alright, so the second peak's higher than the first. That tells us that it's, we're getting more total force. Um, now, the time interval, how quickly we send that section, second action potential is really important. Okay? If we wait a long time, 90 milliseconds, okay, we're going to send an action potential and we're going to wait 90 milliseconds before we send the next one. You wait too long. Okay? You get the contraction, you're almost completely relaxed before the next one goes again. Okay? So you don't, get, you don't get nearly as much of the additive effect. So let's shorten this. Let's do it here. Okay? So you can see the, the, the timing in which you send these action potentials is important for the summation. So this is the part I was talking about where we can actually train our nervous system to recruit these motor units in an effective pattern. And you have to do it by, by, by physically doing the activity. Okay? That's how you train the nervous system to tell those motor units to contract in a coordinated fashion. Um, and in fact, let's see. Alright, and then in fact, this is how muscles really produce force because the, the action potentials are sent, a lot of them very rapidly, so what you'll see is this summation um, like this. Okay. Yes. Yes. No. Exactly. It's happening so fast that you're seeing the whole muscle appears to be solidly contracted the entire time, but that's what's going on at the muscle cell level. Okay. Now you got to see the fatigue part, so that's a that's a little bit of a of a uh, preview for tomorrow's lab. Okay. Good. Sure. Sure. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm glad you volunteered for tomorrow's lab because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take the bicep brachii out of your right arm, <laughs> take it into Dr. Ingalls' lab. Yeah. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, this, what's referred to this this part right here. Uh, where it goes up through this incomplete tetanus. This is the range of normal muscle activity, okay? Where you're going to do normal activity that's coordinated muscle action. You, you can get to the point where there is the tetany that we talked about, where the muscle is being bombarded so much that it's kind of like it's in rigor, okay? And then this is the point at which, even though, and this will be kind of the point of tomorrow's lab, even though you're still sending signals to that muscle, the action potential is telling it to produce force, something's going on in the muscle that it's not able to respond to that signal and you start to see force fall off. 
And when you're trying to get the muscle to produce force and it's not able to, we call that fatigue. It doesn't go anywhere because all, all the action potential is, is it's, is it's those sodium and potassium ions that are in different, um, normally at rest, you've got a lot of sodium outside the cell and potassium inside the cell. They're both positively charged ions, but they have such a different distribution that it tends to be more positive outside the cell and more negative inside the cell. So the action potential is just the sodium ions flooding into the cell and the potassium ions flooding out. So you're getting that exchange of ions. Once the action potential is done, what those cells have to do is reset. And so the, the, the electrical signal doesn't go anywhere. It's just now you've got these, um, you've got a lot of sodium uh, ions inside the cell and a lot of potassium ions outside the cell. And that's where that sodium potassium pump starts to work to kick the sodiums out and bring the potassiums back in and it resets what's called that resting membrane potential. Okay? Question. I just wanted to make sure what you said um, the the kind of the nervous system. Right. 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 So that novice weightlifter it's trying to lift that, you know, free weight. They're not, they're not used to doing it. And so what's happening is the brain is kind of chaotically sending signals, you know, because it, it, it's encountering this big force, and it's trying to produce force, but it's doing it sort of in an uncoordinated fashion. Okay? But if you actually physically practice that movement, what happens is the brain learns, and it learns how to send the action potentials in a coordinated fashion and send them quickly enough that you can get that summation and you can produce more force. Okay? Rebecca. Um, so for the fatigue, is the actual potential still like firing? Well, tell me after lab tomorrow. <laughs> 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 Almost got me to answer the, like, your lab questions for you, but not quite. Okay, question, Yolanda? No? You're good?